As I said in episode 900, my update about dropping this podcast back to one a week for a while for health reasons, I'm going to be sharing brand new episodes only on Mondays for a while. I'm going to use my usual Wednesday and Friday slots to reshare some excellent older episodes. What follows is one of those interviews. People's fealty to parties and party affiliation is becoming less and less strong. People are politicized. There was like 26 million people on the streets over the past few months. But people are making political choices outside of the traditional party structures. People still need political homes. And as more and more people are politically homeless, there will be a deeper desire to find political homes. And so independent political projects outside of the two parties, I think, will become more and more of a feature of our politics. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. The Working Families Party aspires to build a multiracial party of working people to transform our country. Their national director and my guest today is Maurice Mitchell. Maurice and I had a good conversation about his history and his philosophy of leadership and how his party fits into the progressive ecosystem. Maurice is a thoughtful guy, well worth your listen. So, after a quick word with our sponsor, my interview with Maurice with the Working Families Party. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Maurice, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Maurice Mitchell. I'm the National Director of the Working Families Party. I grew up on the south shore of Long Island to two immigrant parents from the Caribbean, Trinidad and Grenada. My grandmother was a domestic worker. That's how my family got here. And I've, I'm a longtime organizer. My identity, you know, my religion is organizing. And I've been organizing since I was a young person, since I was a student. The first electoral campaign I worked on was in middle school. The first campaign I ran was my own in in grade school as class president. <laughs> you know, since then, I've been working on social justice issues, you know, from education to nuclear proliferation in middle school and high school, then eventually went to Howard University. And I was a student activist there, primarily working on criminal justice and police accountability issues. A classmate of ours, Prince Jones, was killed by an undercover police officer that politicized a lot of people on campus. And that's where I, I first started doing direct actions and getting really deep in, in criminal justice, working on divestment from private private prisons and things like that. 
and went back home to Long Island and organized for almost a decade on the very, very grassroots, hyper-local level, mainly in Black and brown communities, but multiracial organizing with a progressive organization called the Long Island Progressive Coalition and worked on criminal justice issues, um, worked on environmental justice, taxation, um, educational equity, and also worked on a number of electoral campaigns and helped flip the New York State Senate. And then went on to do statewide work and helped found the State Voices and the C4 sort of collaborative table in New York State, the New York State Civic Engagement Table. Did that for a few years. When Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson, I reached out to the Organization for Black Struggle, left my job, my family, my friends, my apartment in Brooklyn, and relocated to St. Louis to embed with the Organization for Black Struggle to support the uprising in St. Louis and Ferguson that was taking place there. And with a number of other folks, both locally and around the country, helped to form the Movement for Black Lives and formed a project called Blackbird that is continues to be a behind-the-scenes sort of movement anchor that provided strategy, helped build containers, training in communications, organizing, and policy, and helped to catalyze the Movement for Black Lives to be an international movement. When Donald Trump was elected and rode a white Christian identity wave all the way up to the White House, I felt like it was pretty important to build a equally animated multiracial alignment of forces that could defeat him. We're weeks away from this election. So since 2018, August of 2018, I I left my, my work at Blackbird to take the helm at the Working Families Party, uh, which has been in existence for more than 20 years. And I'm the second national director. The first national director was Dan Cantor, who was the founding director. Um, And so for the past two years, the questions I've been raising through the Working Families Party is, what does a multiracial alignment of forces look like in these particular conditions? How do we bring together the activity of social movements like the Movement for Black Lives with uh, labor institutions and grassroots organizations and sort of unaffiliated activists to build a united front, an electoral united front in order to do the people's business? And that's been the work I've been invested in for the, the, the past two years. And that's incredibly important work at this moment and always. And what a interesting career you have to talk about. I was struck by that phrase that you said that your religion is organizing and that it seems to go back that political instinct all the way to grade school. What do you think it was that put you on that path originally? To me, it's easy. It's, you know, my parents, my grandmother she passed when I was in middle school, unfortunately. But I learned a lot, and I think I imbued a lot of that, of those qualities from her and my parents. They lived for community. You know, my grandmother would bring other people into her home that needed a way station. My parents did the same thing. My grandmother, when she came to the States, she made sure that other people from the Caribbean, from Trinidad, but also other islands, could have a, a pathway to come to the States and work. And she basically was a one-person sort of 
job counselor and sort of uh, immigration <laughs> lawyer and everything else and housing uh, specialist and really helped a lot of people get their bearings in the U.S., a lot of folks from the Caribbean. And we've always been committed to to social justice. I grew up with a, a consciousness that was very much rooted in the African diasporan experience, very much rooted in this idea of Pan-Africanism. And so in my household, we talked about Malcolm and Martin and Garvey and all of these movements of Black people trying to achieve justice. You know, it felt very right to me to follow in those people's footsteps. The other thing is that I witnessed, I witnessed a lot of difference and it didn't sit well with me, even as a very young person. So I also have a consciousness that is the result of my racial identity, my identity as a as a child of immigrants. So I'm shuttling from Trinidad and Grenada, which is part of the global south, and I'm, I'm going back to the global north. I'm seeing the differences. I still have plenty of cousins and aunts and uncles who live in those countries. And those differences struck me. I saw the differences from very early on of how I was treated as a young person. I went to a multiracial school district, Long Beach, New York. Black students were immediately tracked into a tracking system that put a lot of Black kids in special ed and into classes that had a impact on our psyche that said that we were somehow less than. Um, all of these things struck me as wrong when I experienced it. So all of those experiences built in me this fervor to build power to change those things very, very, very early on. Like when I was like in fifth grade or sixth grade, I was super clear about what I wanted to do. I didn't know you could get paid to be an organizer, but I knew that I wanted to be deeply involved in social change and I wanted to commit my life to it. I was, you know, a young person that observed a lot and I was, I, I just observed these race, class, and gender imbalances and these structural deficiencies in our system. And I immediately just felt like this is, not only is this unacceptable, but this is changeable. I mean, it's one of the really key things that many immigrant and immigrant families bring to our country is that comparison with somewhere else and that value system that that's working for social justice. And I don't know, the the ability to uproot from somewhere else and, and make it here brings a lot of power, I think. When you were young and in those schools, you know, how were you received by by your peers when you were like running for class president and trying to be an activist and so on? The first race I ran, I lost, I think it was in seventh grade, if I'm correct. I think I ran for like class secretary or something like that, and I lost you know, losses could be some of the most helpful experiences because you could really learn a lot from a loss. Like I lost that one race and I went back and I, you know, at this point, I don't know exactly what assessments I made, <laughs> but I made some <laughs> changes. And the, the next race I, I won as for class president, I kept on running. So in ninth grade, I was class president all the way through to as a senior, I was like student body president. Based on the results, like I was, I was received well. I wasn't dealing with like heady issues. I think one of the things I ran on was ensuring that we had more of a variety of food and, you know, lunch. You know, it wasn't like 
hard-hitting issues. I do think that for some of my classmates, I was considered that person that had a social justice mindset. I was like considered somebody who was the activist. I embraced that identity. I was like, yeah, this is what I'm about. Kids nerd out on things. Like you're nerding out on sports. I'm nerding out on this. Very early on, I was reading stuff that was way above my head. Like I read Marx when I was in sixth grade. I didn't completely understand it. Like I read Capital. (laughs) (laughs) But my my dad had it in the bookshelf and he always talked about it. Like that's another thing. Like my dad was, you know, he's a working class Caribbean immigrant. Not all your working class Caribbean immigrants are reading Marx. He was a, a somewhat learned political scholar just just through the school of hard knocks. Like he he just discovered things and he he brought it to me. And so he was like, yeah, you should read this. And I remember reading it like I did read it. And like I understood 30, 20 percent of it. Right? He would always like have these quotes that he would rattle off like to each according to their need, from each according to their ability. He would just always say that, and that would just stick with me. And I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Those things really, I think, impacted, to this day, how I look at the world. The other thing is, you know, putting aside the politics, the racism that I experienced early on, I think, really shaped me. I experienced racism from classmates, from teachers, from administrators, as a young person, And at the moment that I experienced that, I knew something wrong was happening. I knew something horrible was taking place, something traumatic. I felt it in my body, but I didn't necessarily have my voice. I didn't know how to respond in real time. And I think a lot of the organizing that I do now is drawn from those experiences of feeling that trauma, feeling the the rage, feeling the confusion of experiencing that racism, not feeling like I had a voice, not feeling like I could be empowered to push back on it and wanting to right those wrongs, even as an adult, like nursing that child me that that didn't feel like they had the ability to respond and now responding in real time as an adult. I do think that that is something that that compels me. And, you know, when I think back at it, I'm like, man, I was a kid. How can this adult treat me in that way? Like, I still feel a sense of indignancy and rage at at some of those experiences. And I know there's so many young people who are experiencing things like that today. And, you know, I feel duty bound to do everything I can not to be incrementalist about it because we're harming children now to to transform the the conditions of our society so that they aren't harmed. There's a, a fairly large component of our country that that looks at things like Marx and socialism with a, I don't know, a lens of extreme negativity, really based on our competition with other countries and also just some of the conservatism of this country over time. How do you fit in politically when you understand the value of some of the thinkings of people in that area, but know that the country is not always ready for for revolution. So number one, I think oftentimes we misuse ideology, right? So I think it's really important to study. And these are all ideas. We shouldn't be afraid of ideas. People should read Marx. People should read, you know, people should read a lot of work. I am no 
neoliberal, but I'm not afraid of reading Milton Friedman. It's called being educated. Yeah. Reading and understanding people's frameworks is just really helpful, if, especially if you're interested in trying to change the world, right? So, you know, I would just say that. But I would say that you develop an ideological position not to be dogmatic or rigid, but you use ideology as a, as a lens and as a way to analyze your current conditions. There's no way you could change the world for the better if your position is dogmatic and fundamentalist and you're ideologically dogmatic and fundamentalist. I, I think ideology should be fluid and adaptive. And so a Marxist reading of our conditions will change based on the, on the conditions. A, a Chicago school sort of economic reading of our economic conditions should change based on the conditions, right? And so, so if, if your answer to everything, no matter what's going on, no matter what the actual conditions are that people are experiencing, is cut taxes, then you're a ideological fundamentalist, right? It, it actually doesn't matter. The information that you're experiencing and receiving on the ground doesn't really matter because your your focus is on on proving a point. It's kind of like in a relationship. Like, would you rather be right or would you rather demonstrate to your partner that you care for them? Like, you have to decide what you're trying to do. And I think with organizing, is it our main objective to prove how righteous or right we are or how better our viewpoint is than the others? Or is it to ensure that that everyday people could thrive and find happiness in the short time that they have on this planet? So what I would say to people who are afraid of left ideas, and it's like, these are, these are ideas that are, are, are prisms that you could take on and take off in order to see and analyze our reality. Second thing ideology could do is provide a North Star so that you know where you're going. You need to know where you're going. Otherwise, in a very chaotic world, you're just going to kind of run around in circles. So if, if where we're going is a world where it doesn't matter what race you are, what gender you are, what zip code you happen to be raised in, how much money your parents have, all those things, you could have human dignity, you could realize your full human potential, and um, you could experience as much human happiness as, as possible in the eight to nine, maybe 10, if you're lucky, decades that you live on Earth. If that's the North Star, that's something incredibly important to have. And so I do think that, yeah, because of our experience in the Cold War and other things, we have this cultural baggage of, on one side, we have this cultural baggage of anti-communism, anti-anything left, right, which is was based on the war effort that we were involved in. And then we also have this American exceptionalism that was also based on the war effort that we're involved in and also based on a lot of other things, including us being, you know, being this settler colonial experiment that requires us to feel exceptional so that we don't deal with our history. Both of those things are actually not helpful in analyzing the world that we live in. American exceptionalism 
doesn't help us be exceptional. It helps us essentially delude ourselves, right? So for example, we're, we're actually on the verge of teetering into neo or proto-fascism with Donald Trump. I think one of the ways that we got there was our belief in our exceptionalism. Because we don't think we're susceptible to the same things, to the same urges, to the same impulses that humans in Rwanda and Cameroon and uh, Latin America, uh, you know, from Chile to Argentina to wherever, like wherever else, to Cuba and the Caribbean, the same urges, the same conditions, the same forces that all these other humans are susceptible to when it comes to forming our society and maintaining our national project, we're even more susceptible to to people like Donald Trump. And we have this fealty to our American institutions, like they're somehow literally come from God and are therefore sacrosanct and and indestructible. Well, no, if you if you disabuse yourself of American exceptionalism, you're gonna work every single day to maintain those things and to uh, modify those things and to uh, build new things. But when you just think we're exceptional because we're exceptional, other folks are just somehow not on, on par with us. And anybody who's offering a alternative from the left is bad and a communist. Well, I think that really limits your ability to come up with solutions. That uh, resonates with me. There's, there's this sort of America first nationalism that is kind of the ugly side of American exceptionalism. And then there's potentially some kind of authentic patriotism that is not so noxious that recognizes that we're trying to perfect a country and make it a lot better. Do you think there's a reasonable kind of patriotism? Sure, absolutely. You know, I think a patriotism that is driven by a deep connection, an authentic heart-centered connection to your community, to your family, to the people who you identify as your country people, so that everyone could thrive so that we could we could truly be our best that resonates with me and i think that that type of patriotism doesn't need to be at the expense of others nationalism is something that you you need to monitor because right wing nationalism is a threat to all of humanity and a patriotism that is not about how great we are compared to others, but is about how much work we need to do in order to perfect this experience is something very different. We could personalize it. There's people who seek validation and people who seek sort of self-esteem based on their comparison to others. So, so oftentimes, by way of that, people bully others, people put down others so that they could feel better about themselves. Then there is a philosophy about self-improvement that recognizes that really this journey that you're on is is about you, quote-unquote, competing with yourself, you, quote-unquote, challenging yourself to be the best person you could be. And in that sense, a patriotism that is inward-looking 
introspective, humble, open to feedback, and recognizes that a nation's journey is not a A to B destination. It is a long march journey to achieving, to quote from our history, a more perfect union. That is a patriotism that that I think could be very generative, very healing. But I think folks on the right wing have certainly co-opted the language of patriotism and used it to divide, used it to warmonger, used it to challenge democracy. There is a very scary and very robust conversation happening on the far right where they're openly suggesting that this country has never been a democracy, that there are things that are much more important than democracy, and that to be patriotic and to be freedom-loving and and to be a true patriot and a true American is to not allow ourselves to, to fetishize democracy over the national interest, right? And so that's scary, that's huh? Yeah, that's the direction <laughs> that patriotism could take and nationalism could take. And that's where we are. These are sitting Republican elected officials. I've been reading. So I'm curious how your personal theory of leadership has developed. Like, clearly, your time at Howard was meaningful, but can you trace, like, with as your education and your career progressed, how you came to think more about? how how we lead? Sure. It's a really great question. And I'd like to credit all of the really dysfunctional leadership dynamics I found myself in, you know, being led by folks who had not done their work. <laughs> um, negative leadership, negative <laughs> examples are really useful, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I've come to this position around leadership. The type of leadership that I'm attempting to embody is the leadership that I learned through organizing, where you could tell a good organizer by the other organizers that they're able to eventually develop, which is a different model of leadership. There's the very top-down leadership where it's like you could tell an effective leader by the number of followers they have. And I think all leaders do have followers, but if you're a part of that following, are you being transformed? Is your understanding of your relationship to power being transformed? If you're part of that following, over time, are you developing in your sophistication? Are you shifting from seeing yourself as a subject to an agent? Are you seeing yourself as from somebody who experiences things where things happen to them? to becoming somebody who makes things happen. To me, that type of leadership is one that I think is really important to model and to model publicly. Like most of my work, most of my career has been really uh, behind the scenes. This is my most public role, the role that I've taken uh, these past two years as national director of the Working Families Party. And I was very deliberate in taking this role and having this role be public. I was as deliberate in having this role be public as I was deliberate in having my other roles be uh, behind-the-scenes roles because I thought it was actually really critical in a time where, you know, you have activists with large social media platforms and followings, and there's a almost like a celebrity culture being built around activism. 
that there were people modeling public leadership that was focused squarely on a power-building strategy for the many, not a platform-building strategy for an individual. So that is how I approach the work that I do. So whenever I am speaking, I am representing the members and staff and organizations and coalition partners that make up the Working Families Party. Whenever I'm addressing an audience, I'm not just sort of addressing an audience based on my off-the-cuff musings at the time. It's based on the long-term strategic perspective of the party that I represent and the power-building imperatives of the party and the commitment and accountability that I have to our base as well as to the communities that people in our base live in. And I take that very seriously. And, you know, leadership isn't something that you have to do. It's something that you elect to do. And so if you elect to do that, that word accountability is something that you have to you have to take very seriously. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes it might even be annoying. If there is one attribute that I think is a superpower for leaders, it's humility. Um, in order to truly be accountable, it requires leaders to exude an elevated level of humility. And by humility, I don't mean false humility, like, oh, shucks, I'm not that great. I don't mean that. I mean the ability to every interaction, every person, to receive that person with curiosity and true interest. That's what I mean. That is very, very hard to do. That is not easy, but that is required of leadership. And if you're incapable of doing that, either emotionally or otherwise, then I think you're incapable of leadership. However, there, there are plenty of leaders. There is plenty of people who identify themselves as leaders who don't exhibit that humility, who seek to build their own personal power who seek to be less accountable, not more. So I think it's important to, to demonstrate that there's different models of leadership. I really agree with that. And I'm really attracted to the leaders who seem to have that almost natural humility, but also who work on it, you know? But I also recognize that there's something in humans that seems attracted to the other form, the Trumpian narcissistic, you know, self-aggrandizing leader. Why do you think we we also look at that when it doesn't seem to serve us a lot of times? Not to psychoanalyze people, but so much of our experience, so much of our identity is wrapped up in what we experience between zero years old and, you know, 15. So much of the rest of our life is unpacking all of that. And oftentimes, if we're not mindful, we replace one mother or one father with another. We do that in different ways. We might replace our biological parents with a partner that fills that void or a political leader that fills that void. If we're not mindful, we'll do that without giving much thought. The other current is when people feel 
socially dislocated, disoriented, afraid, when people have serious questions that are not easily answered, when there are people who are offering simple answers to those questions and a simple map of the world that explains who the victors are, who the losers are, who your people are, who the enemy is, that is a very attractive invitation, which makes the job of people like me really important. Reaching people before they're seduced by the siren song of these types of, I mean, and we should call them what they are, they're con people. I don't like to give the current president the title of being a authoritarian strong man. Like that is, in his wildest dreams, he would want to be that. <laughs> he's a con man. He's yeah. a con man. He's um, always has been. Yeah. I mean, this is what he does. He's running as con. He's clearly very, very insecure. I don't often quote George Will, but I do appreciate how he termed him. He called him the, the weak man, strong man. That is exactly who he is. So the other piece is that like, it's, a, it's an attractive invitation to have your world immediately understood, your problems immediately answerable, and to have an external enemy that could explain why the conditions of your life are what the conditions are. Which is one of the reasons why I think mass organizing, you know, labor unions, all of this work is so important because it allows people to stop and be a little bit mindful and ask questions about our society, hard questions, without getting easy answers about how we got into these conditions and whose decision making led to these conditions. And I think if we do enough of that, then we, instead of looking at each other as problems, we could look towards each other for the solutions. When you really sit down and think about it, and this is one of the things we do with organizing, we create space for working people to think about their problems and to think about big, heady social problems, like use your common sense, right? So you're dealing with all this stuff, your neighbor's dealing with similar stuff, your neighbor's family is from another country and they speak a different language, your other neighbor... Um, live on the same block, same housing stock, same city. Your other neighbor has a different racial background. Now, there's a billionaire who happens to claim to share your racial identity, who says, I'm on your team and you're on my team. And we together are not on the same team as these people who have almost the same conditions that you're in. The ability to make that happen that speaks to how powerful the solidarity of whiteness is. The solidarity of whiteness could short circuit in a working class white person's mind the decision making apparatus to be able to appropriately assess, like, hey, I have more in common with my next door neighbor whose family comes from Guatemala than I do with Donald Trump, who doesn't know me, <laughs> doesn't care about me benefits from the decisions that that hurt all of us, which is why organizations like labor unions that have white workers, black workers, Latinx workers, and others like struggling together, so important because it, it, it breaks the spell of white identity and it protects white workers from the ideology of white identity 
and that that strong man appeal of people like uh, Steve Bannon, Steve Miller, and uh, Donald Trump, that uh, economic nationalism, that that whole philosophy, before they even get drawn into it. Once you're drawn into it, it's really hard to unpack. Uh, it's really, really hard to unpack. But that was the circuitous way of how I look at it, right? Like, on some levels, it's like interpersonal. On another level, like you're dealing with multiple things, which is why I talked about the interpersonal and how we replace parents. But also, we're dealing with market forces and we're dealing with organized capital and we're, we're dealing with the fact that so many people feel so off in that environment is very easy for somebody who says they have all the solutions to lead them. And we need leadership that challenges people to actually begin to think critically about the reality rather than giving them the solution. That's very helpful in understanding how you think about things. I want to ask you, because I'm very interested in sort of political entrepreneurship, about Blackbird, which is something that you helped create or led. Tell me about what was the reason you did that and how it all worked out. Sure. I'm going to answer that question by invoking Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture. Stokely Carmichael, for the people that may not know, civil rights and Black freedom struggle leader who led SNCC, was uh, part of the Panthers, coined the phrase Black Power, later on in his life moved to West Africa and continued to organize to his dying day in order to create a sort of pan-African alignment of forces to transform the world. In his dying year, I heard him speak And he said a lot of really just amazing things. He was a brilliant speaker, a brilliant thinker, a brilliant organizer. One of the things that he said was his organization, the All African People's Revolutionary Party, he was seeking to organize people uh, into his organization. But he said, like, if, if you don't identify with our politics, then your job is to find another organization. He's like, I'm not a, I'm not with the Urban League or with, the NAACP or but like it's better for you to join them than to not join any organization. I'd rather you join us. And if you can't find any organization that aligns with your values or the intervention that you think you need to make, build it. And when I heard those instructions, it was like lightning hit me. I felt like he was talking directly to me. And that was the approach that myself, Mervyn Marcano, Tenjue McHarris, uh, the two other co-founders of Blackbird. I think that was the approach that we took. We all uh, worked very closely with people on the ground in St. Louis and, and in Ferguson during that uprising. And we responded in ways that we recognized were needs, not just in that moment, but needs in Black organizing. Black organizing has been historically disinvested from, and there was deep infrastructure needs all over the country. And we believed that there needed to be a high-impact, low-ego team of folks that would be able to rapidly respond to Black communities in crisis and not extract, which often happens when rapid response takes place, but to keep on the ground and help to inspire long-lasting Black organizing infrastructure that may have been necessary because of a horrible police murder of a of a community member but 
could be a long-term piece of necessary power-building infrastructure for that community and then connect that to other communities to build a network of relationships across the country. So we felt that that was a need. We looked at the landscape. It didn't exist. And so we we sought to develop it. You know, and this is something that I take from that experience is how I continue to make interventions. If I feel like the intervention is real and if the vision sets my soul on fire, then that vision is what moves me. Not whether or not we have money. It's just like this vision, this must happen. And once once I feel like it must happen, if I could get at least two other people to also feel like it must happen, then, you know, there's power in threes. <laughs> then, then you pull the trigger. And the momentum of the soul-stirring vision will attract everything necessary. The other people, the other resources. Vision, to me, is the most powerful currency. Vision and relationships. Those two things. Did it work out that way? Did you have the vision to attract what you needed and have impact? Yeah, absolutely. We played a role that I think, and Blackbird continues to exist, and I think continues to be a very, very effective intervention, both in the broader movement and in in Black organizing. The thing about it is that it's not up to you to decide whether or not your vision is salient. It's up to others. So if we're walk if we're walking around with a vision and you can't inspire anybody else around it, well, it's your vision, but it's not salient. The need that we articulated was there, and then we were able to relate to other people through those relationships, through our commitment to meet them and to fill that need. And we, you know, the interventions that we we made through Blackbird were very, very instrumental in helping to, to build the movement for Black Lives. Very cool. What is the Working Families Party for those people who are not in a state where it's too active or not too up on it? And how did you land the current job you have? I told you that I started getting involved as a teenager. I actually petitioned for this thing called the New Party when I was a teenager. Uh, the, the precursor to the... Yeah. To, yeah. 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 So it's kind of like, uh, like it's a full circle sort of situation here. So the new party was basically this idea. And this was at a time when the Clintons sort of um, adopted triangulation, basically taking some economic ideas from Republicans, social ideas from Democrats, and using that to, to, to basically run the map electorally. The idea was that that would be a way of preserving Democratic majorities in perpetuity didn't work out that way. But when it happened, people in the labor movement definitely felt there was a a stirring in the labor movement of feeling like this was the wrong path and that the Democratic Party had lost its way, aligning with the interests of, of Wall Street, aligning with fiscally conservative sort of ideas, basically forming the neoliberal consensus that both Republicans and Democrats just basically adopted a neoliberal Chicago school, Milton Friedman sort of perspective of the world. So the Working Families Party was built in that moment from from the new party. 
And the new party strategy was there's something called fusion voting. I'm not going to bore the listeners with it too much, but basically it means that one party can cross endorse the candidate of another party. And when a voter goes in the ballot, there'll be the Democratic Party line and the Republican Party line. And then there'll be these other parties like the Working Families Party line. And you could vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris either on the Democratic Party line or the Working Families Party line. And both of those votes count to their total um, at the end of the day. Only available in a few states. Only available in a few states. But the whole new party idea was the fact that there was a legal sort of leg to stand on that suggested that this could be the law of the land. Long story short, the Supreme Court decided that wasn't the case. So many of those folks decided, let's still build this, but in a state where fusion is available. So that's how the Working Families Party started in New York, because fusion is available by state law in New York. It's also true in a few other states like South Carolina, now in Oregon, Connecticut, a few other states. So the Working Families Party started in New York in the uh, late 90s, and it was a coalition of labor unions and grassroots organizations building people power and using the fusion voting line in order to, to articulate that there is a significant base of people that in a binary choice between a Democrat and Republican will choose the Democrat but there's more to the story with these voters. They're actually saying, that's not it. We're also adopting a platform that we want that Democrat to execute, right? And we're a coherent party on our own of people who are making the strategic decision to vote for the Democrat. And the idea is that the the more you build that power, the more you advance the agenda. So voting isn't just a binary choice for the best person who made it to the general election. Uh, With the fusion line, it allows you to build a power around the agenda and around the people. So that was the theory in New York. And over the, the, the past two decades, the New York Party has proven that that model could actually work, has changed the face of the New York City Council, was able to route uh, a set of corporate Democrats called the IDC. And then in those years, the party has spread to more than a dozen states. We're, we're all over the place now. Now, we're in states that don't have fusion. And why, why I don't want to center fusion, but I want to tell the story of the party accurately. For us, a party is people who freely associate in order to engage in electoral work, to advance a, an agenda that is sort of cohered by a, an ideological North Star. Those are the four elements of a party. You could do that if you have fusion, like in New York or or Connecticut. You could do that if you don't have fusion. So in the places where we don't have fusion, we often use the Democratic Party primary as a site of struggle. We opportunistically hack the Democratic Party primary in order to tell the story about where working people are at. So, you know, we do that in all states, including New York. So Jamal Bowman is going to Congress and he is a working families candidate. He is an independent person who didn't come from the traditional Democratic Party pipeline, who uh, was an educator and a principal in the Bronx, and he will be sitting in Congress representing everybody. We focus on down-ballot races. I talked about Jamal. We, we focus on down-ballot races like um, 
like municipal races, city council, mayor, and state legislature. And, you know, in uh, from 2008 till the end of the Obama administration, Democrats lost a thousand state ledge seats, right? So we think that the down ballot work, that's kind of our, our bread and butter. We think it's so important. People are closer to the outcomes down ballot. It's more accessible for working people to, to win those races and to defeat incumbents. And so we put a lot of stock in building the, the grassroots pipeline of progressives through those ba- down ballot races. And, you know, some of the same ways that, that um, the far right did, you know, starting in the 70s, you know, um, getting people involved in elections on the down ballot races, on city councils, on school boards, and then eventually using that as a proving ground for them to do more and more. So that's sort of our theory. Our theory is that if we were in a multi-party system, then people who believe the stuff that I believe wouldn't necessarily be in the same party as Rahm Emanuel. And we shouldn't pretend simply because we're in a very rigid two-party system that everybody who's a Democrat or who votes for Democrats believe the same stuff. The people who believe in a people-centered way of doing things, the people who believe that living in a social democracy is just common sense, those people should be able to organize together and organize their votes together. And that's what the Working Families Party seeks to do. And we also think that the elected officials who represent those ideas should come from the base, which is why we work really hard to recruit everyday people who believe in those values uh, to run and win. How did they end up hiring you? Did you seek the job? Did they come after you? How did that work? This was the end of 2016. The best way I can understand it is that 2016 was a very traumatic experience for everybody, (laughs) right? And I think it led to a lot of soul searching on the part of everybody in our movement. I think people who were leading institutions for decades, like my comrade uh, and former director, Dan Cantor, I think recognized that it was time for a different set of leaders in order to make assessments about the conditions that we were in. And so, you know, Dan signaled that he was going to transition, right? And a lot of people, a lot of founders don't know how to leave. So I credit him in making that choice. The party, just like the DNC has the the Democratic National Committee, we have like, we have the WFPNC. Our national committee sort of did a pretty broad search and a very lengthy search to identify the next national director. And I always thought that choosing me would be a risky choice for them because of the, the institutional history of the party. And I was coming from movement building, right? I was coming from doing things that were like anti-institutional, right? And so like hiring somebody to run an institution that is also a coalition of institutions that comes from movement building, direct action, um, has a very disruptive sort of uh, philosophy about how change happens, I think is like objectively risky. But also in 2016, I think a lot of people recognized that it was a time to let go of some of the risk-averse decision-making and take chances on very clear interventions. And I think on their side, they were ready for that. On my side, uh, coming from building Black movement, my reflection was Black people were 13% of the population. 
we need to build coalitions with others to defeat the white supremacists and white nationalists that want to literally kill us. <laughs> and so we need folks who are deeply connected to Black movement, like myself, working on the multiracial project. And so I made a decided, like deliberate decision in coming to the Working Families Party to do that. And what I felt and I still feel pretty clear about was that if we could create a nexus of different forces, social movement forces like the Movement for Black Lives, but other social movements, labor institutions, grassroots organizations, and this growing cadre of activists who are unaffiliated and certainly don't feel a fealty to any party and not the Democratic Party, if we could create a nexus, a united, a sort of uh, electoral united front of those forces, that would be a powerful united front, a non-delusional set of independent power that could come together and do serious work electorally up and down the ballot, if we could bring that together. And there's tons of reasons why we, why we can't. And then on top of it, if it could be authentically multiracial, and then on top of it, if it could be authentically from the grassroots and the working class, and on top of it, if we could bring in um, a significant critical mass of, of working class people of color, and if we could uh, be committed to ensuring that working class white people also could see themselves in this multiracial alignment that is led by people of color, if we could do those things, we could transform the politics of this country, defeat the far right, and also render the Republican Party over time into an ineffectual political model because they have doubled down on white Christian identity and they've doubled down on that, which has made it much harder for them to organize people of color. If we could organize 15% of the working class white base into that multiracial alignment, then, then the, the prospects of Republican governance and, and far-right governance based on white Christian identity would just numerically be be very, very, very hard. That assessment is what drives the organizing at Working Families Party and what drove me to come to the party. It's my very deep belief that the white nationalist project, we need to take very seriously. Like they are not playing games. They, they are as serious as we are. And I have a four-year-old. I care for his black life. Uh, we have to build coalitions across region, across race, across difference that seeks to create the, the same interventions and where wherever you are, you come into the fight, not as charity, but based on your communal self-interest. That is not easy to do. That has been historically vexing, but it's the only thing I could think of worth doing in this political moment. There's a, a very, I don't know, strategic, pragmatic choice to go about it in that way one of the things you mentioned was, you know, partially what you try to do is hack the Democratic Party. And there are plenty of places where the Democratic Party is run by very progressive people, where they have taken over by virtue of inside the party elections, the leadership, where they represent a multiracial coalition. Why the choice to do it outside the Democratic Party rather than inside the Democratic Party? So have you ever heard of the concept of dual citizenship? Certainly. 
Right. So the U.S. actually is like, look, if you're a citizen of the U.S., you need to renounce everybody else. Right. And the Working Families Party is does not take that stance. Right. You could be a very proud WFP activist and also be a Democratic Party committee person. We are, like all parties, a coalition of forces. We're a big tent. We just think that the Democratic Party's tent is so big that it's untenable. The fact that you have people who identify legit as socialist or democratic socialist who, who are part of the Democratic Party coalition and people who are like functionaries in Wall Street and deeply believe in a corporate agenda also, also are part of the Democratic Party. We think that that is untenable. And because we think it's untenable, we think that there needs to be forces that are organizing outside of the Democratic Party and inside of the Democratic Party in this very rigid two-party system in order to advance the interest of people who believe that any modern sort of society and any just society should basically take some form of, of social democracy at this point in human existence, right? People who believe that could organize inside the Democratic Party and outside the Democratic Party in order to pull our politics, not just the Democrats, our politics towards that vision of living in a more egalitarian society. The theory of that is recognizing like, yeah, the Democratic Party is this huge tent. There are all these forces in it. And these forces are in contention. They get together for elections to win. So all of these forces are working on the, the Biden election so that we could defeat Donald Trump. And then if Biden is victorious, these forces are going to be in contention again uh, in order to articulate and make meaning of the election, decide like who actually won, who lost and all of that stuff. There needs to be an independent space that is not influenced by the money, by the hierarchy, by the career imperatives of the Democratic Party to consistently articulate the North Star. That is good for people like, that you just articulated who are working inside the Democratic Party. And it's good for people who are working outside the Democratic Party. And we, and we invite both of them, both of those, those sets of people, to work on the Working Families Party project and on the Working Families Party's uh, strategy. I mean, there are simply numerous groups that are part of the progressive coalition that sit outside the party, many, many to the left of the party that represent millions and millions of people. Most of them, almost all of them, don't cast themselves as separate party building. They pick and choose who they want to endorse like you do. They work for candidates. They organize and mobilize voters. But there's something different about Working Families Party, the ambition to be a party. Yeah, um, parties do a number of things and have a number of functions. And we think that that function is needed. We think that working people need their own political party in the United States, which is why I'm not building a progressive organization. I'm building a party. Parties are coalitions, right? And so within the Working Families Party, there are dozens of organizations, labor organizations, grassroots organizations, movement organizations that um, have decided strategically to build the Working Families Party across the country, right? So that's number one, right? And parties are also their base. And so we're both a coalition party and a mass party, individuals who identify with the party. And outside of the United States, parties actually 
spend a lot of time doing political education. The Democrats and the Republicans don't really do that that much. This, this is one of the reasons why we feel that in the U.S., we need a real political party that actually provides all of the, the functions of a political party that many people in many contexts outside of the U.S. have taken for granted. Like when I was in South Africa and I saw a grandma in Soweto with the ANC flag out her window, she knows the political direction of the ANC. She understands it to her core. The ANC shows up in her community in a real way on the community level. So we want to bring that style of party building where the rank and file is developing in their consciousness, understands the political direction of the party. There's real internal democracy so that people could actually engage and, and, and learn how to problem solve with each other around endorsements and around the party direction on the local level. We think that that actually is really important for a healthy democracy, for working people to have these interactions with one another. And then on top of that, another element of party membership is the party's elected officials. So the Democratic Party and Republican Party do do this pretty well. Parties are, and uh, I, I just say this descriptively, it, the, the term has like a pejorative sort of inflection, but parties are disciplinary organizations to their members, their member leaders, meaning that in order for Nancy Pelosi to have any power, she needs to be able to move her caucus in a particular direction. And she uses a series of carrots and sticks to do that, right? When we build the pipeline of elected officials, we don't want to just drop them at the door of the Democratic Party to have to succumb to the structural imperatives of the Democratic Party's disciplinary function. We want them to have their own party where they could seek refuge, where they could seek alignment, where they could work with others that align with their values in order to advance the North Star, which is why party building, I think, is essential to actually achieving the outcomes that we believe in. And everybody doesn't have to build a party, but somebody does. And we've taken it upon ourselves to, to do it and to attempt to do it with rigor. It's not like we're going to nail it in one cycle. The, the, you know, the Working Families Party has been building incrementally over the past 20 years. And you know, I think that that consistent building of infrastructure, of ideological clarity, of political education on the mass level, of the... Um, relationships across different sectors over time in one political project is what will, in a non-delusional way, get us in this country to that much more egalitarian, multiracial, true democratic economy and democratic society. I don't think it happens with one really cool electoral intervention or winning one race or one primary. It is the culmination over cycles and cycles of those things and the capturing of that power and the maintenance of that power and the protection of that power over time, which is something that I think parties do in a unique way. I'm curious about the sort of process and thinking within your party as you watch the 2020 Democratic primary, obviously of huge interest to the direction of the country. You endorsed sort of sequentially Warren, then Sanders, and I think Biden. What were you thinking as a party along the way? We thought it was of critical importance 
for us to engage on the presidential level, even though, as I said, our bread and butter is state and local politics, because we saw so many folks who had a far right sort of Steve Bannon, Steve Miller, Donald Trump ideology articulate, this is our candidate and we're organizing. And then we saw a lot of folks who, you know, articulated the sort of third way triangulation politics, which, you know, we were founded in order to challenge. They kind of had their strategy. We wanted to engage in that conversation. We understood that there were more than one progressive. So before we decided, we had to be comfortable choosing one, right? And we thought it was really important that we chose and that we use the progressive candidacy of a candidate in order to exhibit the type of country that we wanted to live in and then organize in that way in order to create that intervention so that we wouldn't allow our opponents to sort of get ahead of us. And so we we rendered an endorsement and we uh, rendered one for, for Senator Warren very proudly. And when she came out of the race, it was a ranked choice endorsement. And there was a lot of support for Bernie in our base. When she came out of the race, it was, for us, very sensible and keeping with our theory of change to endorse Bernie, who we were very warm towards, you know, before and when we endorsed Warren and then after, uh, because he absolutely exhibited the change that we believed in from a different perspective than Warren, but certainly. And we endorsed Bernie last cycle. And before we endorsed Bernie, we were part of the uh, coalition of forces that attempted to recruit Warren to run that last cycle, and she decided not to. It made a lot of sense for us to make those endorsements. And then with both of them out of the race and both of them endorsing Joe Biden and the binary choice being so clear, again, we, f- we felt it was a moral imperative for us to endorse in the general and to be very clear that we think with this binary choice for progressives, for folks on the left, there is no question that endorsing and voting for enthusiastically Joe Biden, that is the most strategic thing that anybody could do who's interested in the freedom journey that we're in. Not because we believe that Joe Biden has all of our values. In fact, we we are very open about the policy distance between us and Joe Biden. It's because we look at Joe Biden and his candidacy as a door, not a destination. If he wins, it gives us an opportunity to go on the offensive. If he loses, it, it means we'll spend another four years on the defensive, simply trying to mitigate the harm of an administration that, you know, most reasonable observers would say, like, is irresponsible and dangerous. It all makes sense. I hear an enthusiasm in you for the job and the project in front of you. Why is this a good job for you? I think it's a good job for me because it brings together all of my skills, all of my relationships, and all of my experiences up until this point. And it's a very challenging job, so it's stimulating. I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly stretching myself. It's the right job for me at the right time. I always say everything's about time, place, and condition. That's, that's how I govern my life. That's how I decide where I go, career-wise or politically. 
I always try to think of myself as a vessel. I try to like remove myself from the sort of self-interested careerist sort of impulses and just think, how can I be the most effective? And that's what brought me to working with the Organization for Black Struggle in St. Louis and partnering with Mervyn Marcano and Tenjue McCarris on Blackbird and helping to build the movement for Black Lives with uh, many other folks. And it also is what brought me to the Working Families Party. I felt like we were in a, a, a time and a place in this country and conditions that required a certain type of leadership that I described to you, that required leadership of color and Black leadership of a particular quality, that required a, a certain type of coalition building that was focused on movement over institution. When I sit in my role, yes, I'm the national director of the Working Families Party, but my, my prerogative is a movement prerogative. Your job is to grow the movement. And so you need to marshal the resources and the, and the capacities of that entity in the interest of what is best to build the movement and to protect our people. And from that vantage point, I think one of the things that energizes me from this role is that I feel like I am playing my highest purpose and I am in the best position. Like these cells and molecules that I command, that we call, <laughs> that I call my body, I feel like they are in their highest position with me as national director of the Working Families Party. That's got to be quite gratifying to find yourself in a place like that. Maurice, is there a question that I failed to ask that I should have that you'd like to answer? By the way, this has been a great conversation, so thank you. <laughs> I, I feel like that too. You know, like I'm running this this third party. Like most people think third party politics is are are, are wacky and and like not very strategic. And I actually believe that there's room in this rigid two party system for a legitimate political third force in this country in a non fusion situation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I actually believe that that's possible, and I'll tell you why. People's fealty to parties, especially young people, and party affiliation is becoming sort of less and less strong. People are politicized. Like, there was like 26 million people on the streets over the past few months. But people are making political choices outside of the traditional party structures people still need political homes. And as more and more people are politically homeless, there will be a deeper desire to find political homes. And so independent political projects outside of the two parties, I think, will become more and more of a feature of our politics. The ability to cohere those political interests and independent political entities into party structures I think that there's going to be more of that. I don't think WFP will be the only people interested in doing that on the left and the right. I think as time progresses over the next decade or two, we're going to see a lot more of that. I also think that the Republican Party has made really big bets on white Christian identity in a country that is demographically becoming less and less white. When you do that, you're basically signing up either to commit to apartheid or you're signing up to become a historical relic. And either of those things are going to happen. In 2008, 2009, the Republican Party, like people openly talking about whether or not the Republican Party would continue to exist as a national project, right? 
because of how devastated they they were by the Obama coalition. They wrote that um that famous report where they had all these ideas about like, you know, appealing to Latinx uh voters and coming up with immigration reform. They decided not to go in that direction. They decided to go in the direction of white Christian identity and go into the, into the direction of of economic nationalism and to openly court white nationalists. Well, they're likely to have quite a battle if they lose this time about whether to continue on that direction or not. And for the country, I hope they don't. I hope not either, because the more organizing in that direction, the worse we all are. I have a hunch that they're not going to to learn that lesson. I, I have a hunch that <laughs> they um, may they may nominate another Trump next time. We'll see. Yeah, I mean, they might nominate a Senator Cotton. Yeah, that yeah. the Republican Party in the condition that it's in, in the condition that its base is in, I don't see them making a hard pivot towards a reality-based, um, non-white Christian identity-based electoral and political strategy. I just don't see it, but I could be wrong. So, in a future where they they hew to that, I think that there's a, a an opening for a lot of different political expression. Part of what I'm organizing is I'm organizing for that future. We're going to continue to toil away building this, um, building our sophistication. You know, we've expanded to a number of states. We're going to continue to expand to others. Um, you know, our quarrel isn't with the Democratic Party. Our quarrel is with organized capital. So we don't seek to compete outright with the Democratic Party. That's never been our, our imperative. Um, positively, we seek to be in line with the interests of of working people. And like you said, where there's people who identify with the Democratic Party that are aligned with that vision, then we're working with them. Our nimbleness is a, a piece, is a character of, of of our of our party. It's part of our DNA that frustrates some people. I think it 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 that nimbleness, the fact that we're not doctrinaire, the fact that you know what is in the interest of working people in a suburb of um, of Philadelphia might not be the same path in the Bronx. That nimbleness, that ability to assess the landscape, see how we could work with which different forces in order to move the freedom str- struggle a little bit further. And I have aspirations. I have 50 state aspirations. Our ability to build that state by state, county by county, locality by locality will give working people a credible option. And in some places, the only place where they could actually do real grassroots politics. You know, we'll see what happens, but I think people are going to desire to have a grassroots political home. And the two parties, you know, save certain states and certain counties aren't producing that. Well, you know, you're a person I'd love to talk to all day, uh, but I probably should let you return to your fight. So anything else you want to say? That's it. It's been a wonderful wonderful opportunity and really appreciate it. That was Maurice with the Working Families Parties at workingfamilies.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.